Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to another superb lecture, or should I say two lectures, are being given in aid of Venice in Peril, uh, most generously sponsored, as so often in the past, by Kirka Holidays, to whom we are enormously grateful, as we are to Bysol, who produced all that delicious Prosecco. This evening, as I say, uh, such is the almost unbelievable generosity and open-handedness of Venice in Peril and Kirka Holidays that we have for you not one lecturer but two lecturers on the stage at one at the same time. Uh, this is a great moment for us, particularly since our two lecturers are both of immense distinction with extraordinary achievements to their credit. Noah Charney first, who uh, uh, is now adjunct professor of art history at the American University of Rome, and he's also, in his own right, the founder and president of ARCA, which, for those of you who may not in immediately know what it stands for, is the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, which is a non-profit think tank and consultancy. He's written a wonderful novel called The Art Thief and his magnificent book, Stealing the Mystic Lamb, the true history of the world's most coveted masterpiece, was published just last October. He lives in Umbria, lucky man. <laughs> and with him sharing the stage this evening is Vernon Rapley. And Vernon Rapley was uh, with the police for 25 years and led London's Metropolitan Police Art and Antiques Unit for 10 years. His team recovered an average of £7 million worth of stolen and laundered art each year of those years. And you may remember that last year he created an exhibition, uh, he curated, I should say, an exhibition of fakes and forgeries at the National Gallery. Uh, he's now, very sensibly, and how lucky they are to have him, Director of Security at the Victoria and Albert Museum. So, these two gentlemen are responsible for the, the pleasure that we're all going to have over the next year, over the next hour. And meanwhile, <laughs> and Kirka Holidays, I say, are the people who have made it all possible. Thank you. Can you all hear me with the lapel mic so I can wander around a bit? Okay. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to Nikki and Venison Peril. Um, it's a pleasure to be back. Um, Vernon and I spoke uh, more than a year ago, and especially thanks to any of you who put up with us more than a year ago. We're going to hear um, a reprise, but I promise it's a different lecture this time, a different pair of lectures. Last time I spoke about the book that I was working on at the time that's come out now, and there are copies available afterwards. It's the story of um, the Ghent altarpiece by Jan van Eyck, which is both the most frequently stolen artwork in history. It's the object of 13 crimes over 600 years, including seven separate thefts, which is particularly impressive because it weighs 1,500 kilos, and it's about a little smaller than this screen behind me. Um, and it's also arguably the single most influential painting ever made. Um, and if that sounds like a tall statement, then you can read about it and, and, and pick an argument with me afterwards. 
Um, I'm going to talk to you this evening about the history of art forgery. And this is something that Vernon and I work on together. We gave talks on a similar subject a few days ago at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, and it's a particular honor for me to speak um, with Vernon because I'm a big fan of his. I think I'm number two in his fan club. There's an 80-year-old woman who keeps on showing up whenever he gives a tour of the V&A Museum who I think is number one. But um, this is something he probably um, isn't aware of, but um, as I'm a historian of art crime, I can say that Vernon is, in fact, the most accomplished art detective in history. He reduced museum theft in London by 65% during his tenure, and he recovered a miraculous 80% of objects stolen. The next best recovery rate is about 30%, and that's the Carabinieri in Italy, and most countries recover about 10% of what's stolen. So it's a particular thrill to be here with him today. As the warm-up act for, for Vernon's talk about investigating art crime, and he's going to focus on a contemporary case that he solved himself involving the um, infamous Greenhalgh family, I'm going to give you a brief history of art forgery, dealing with famous forgers, many of whom you will know through their original works and may not realize that they were, in fact, forgers as well, and talk about some lessons that we can learn from the history of art forgery to get a better sense of why forgery is committed and also what we can do to protect against it. See if they can work this miraculous technology. Just a little bit about the organization that I run. It's called ARCA, the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art. Um, it's an international nonprofit research group that studies art crime and promotes the study of art crime, which has perhaps surprisingly been overlooked as a field of academic study. We try to bring together international police with museum security directors, members of the art trade, and professors of criminology, art history, law, archaeology, who deal with aspects of art crime. Um, our website is artcrime.info um, if you'd like more information. Um, and we run a number of different projects. Let's see, before I skip ahead. Um, we established what is the first um, academic program in the study of art crime. It's a master's program that we run every summer in Umbria, in the city of Amelia. Um, and we bring 11 or 12 of the world's leading experts in their field to teach intensive 25-hour-long courses in the interdisciplinary subject of the study of art crime. And this ranges from criminologists and art historians and lawyers to art police and museum security directors teaching both the theory and the practical application and investigation of it. We also established what's the first and, and now only academic journal in the field. It's called the Journal of Art Crime and it comes out twice a year and it's a peer-reviewed academic journal. Um, we also published uh, a book of essays called Art and Crime which featured articles both by famous professors and also by police and security directors because there's a real need to preserve the lessons learned through the experience of people like Vernon for future generations um, and that had not been preserved yet. So to begin with we have um, what may be the world's most um, contentious copyright warning which I'll read out to you. Hold, you crafty ones, strangers to work, and pilferers of other men's brains. Think not rashly to lay your thievish hands upon my works. Beware, know you not that I have a grant from the most glorious Emperor Maximilian, that not one throughout the imperial dom dominion shall be allowed to print or sell fictitious imitations of these engravings? Listen, and bear in mind that if you do so, 
through spite or through covetousness. Not only will your goods be confiscated, but your bodies also placed in mortal danger. How's that for an opening? This is from uh, the 1511 edition of Albrecht Dürer's Life of the Virgin. And Dürer had good reason to be uh, wary of forgers. He had already been involved in at least four different cases of um, forgeries of his works in general, his prints, but also his paintings. As of 1494, he had already been involved in four cases. He had had quite enough of this, and one case in particular that took place in Venice, so I thought I would begin tonight's talk with that story, took place in 1506. In 1506, Durer brought a lawsuit in Venice while he was there um, on a painting project, and the lawsuit was brought against the Dalyesus family and Marc Antonio Ramondi. Ramondi was, on his, in his own right, a very famous um, artist and printmaker. He's best known for his copies after Durer, which is part of the point of this story, his engravings after Raphael. Um, and he's also perhaps the world's first professional pornographer. He collaborated with the infamous Pietro Aretino um, on a book called I Modi, which included engravings of elaborate sexual positions, which um, was met with... Um, uh, some contention when it was published at first, but it, it, that's another story. Ramondi was hired by the Dalyesus family, who were printers in Venice, um, to make identical copies of the prints from Durer's earlier edition of his Life of the Virgin. Ramondi made these prints, and he was incredibly skillful, and they are, for all intents and purposes, um, you cannot tell the difference between his and Durer's, except for three changes he made to them. He included his own monogram signature, which is based on the famous A.D. signature of Albrecht Dürer. He included um, an image of the Dalyesus family signature. And he also included the form of the Dalyesus family print shop's logo. And he hid these in the engravings. And Dürer was mailed these engravings by a colleague in Venice. And he was coming to Venice anyway for this painting project. And he was absolutely outraged. And he brought the lawsuit in Venice. And the short version of the story is that the lawsuit was heard in Venice. It may be one of the earliest intellectual properties lawsuits dealing with an artist's trademark or logo. And perhaps a lawyer in the audience afterwards can tell me if they know of any incident that was earlier than this. But in the end, perhaps unsurprisingly, the Venetian authorities determined that while Ramondi and the Dalyesus family would have to remove the AD signature, which had been included in these prints, they would not be penalized, they would not be imprisoned, and that Durer should really be quite flattered that people thought that his work was good enough to copy, and that because Ramondi carved the plates by hand from which the prints were made, they could not have been exact duplicates. And the fact that there were these three alterations made um, suggested that there was not an overt intent to deceive um, and it's entirely possible that the Dalyesus family ordered the um, addition of the three different elements and that it was their idea to add it. We're not sure whether Ramondi intended these to actually be forgeries or copies after, but the case was dismissed with only the stipulation that the AD signature of Albrecht Durer had to be removed and he could not sell them as Durer's but copies after Durer. Durer was not entirely satisfied with this, hence this highly um, ornery uh, 
warning at the beginning of the next edition of the Life of the Virgin, and he did secure um, permission for Maximilian that Maximilian would prosecute anyone who made copies. This was not the only person or the last person to copy Durer. There was, um, for, for lack of a better term, there was a crazy old man who used to make very silly little doodles um, and try to sell them as Durer's in front of the Nuremberg Town Hall. So you have sort of the sublime to the ridiculous in this case, but all with cases of forgeries of Durer's. And in case you haven't been yet at the Jan Gossart exhibition at the National Gallery now, you can see numerous Durer engravings and also um, homages to them, not forgeries, but copies after them done by Netherlandish artists. So it's, it's entirely relevant today because people still bring um, lawsuits of this sort um, for copyright. You may have heard the um, lawsuit regarding um, the American artist who did a silkscreen picture of Obama and was sued by the person who took the photograph based on which he made the silkscreen. You may have also heard the story of uh, the so-called stolen scream. Um, An amateur photographer took a photograph of himself screaming, posted it on Flickr, which is a website where you can upload photos to share with friends, and then that image and variations on it started to appear all over the world, usually used as a means of protest And in fact, political protest posters in Iran used this man's photo as the image on which they based their their, their protest logo. Nobody asked his permission, however. So this is very much a a continuing issue. And we can look back to Albrecht Dürer and this um, copyright warning as one of the earliest examples of an actual lawsuit brought to cover this. There are four categories of forgery that make it a little bit easier to grasp. And I also would like to make a distinction between a fake and a forgery. Um, The short of it is a fake is an authentic object that is altered in some way to increase its value and to deceive. A forgery is something that is created from scratch in a fraudulent imitation of something else, which is why you may hear the term fakes and forgeries, and a lot of people use them interchangeably, but in fact they're different. We will talk about some examples of each of these, but um, to keep in mind, as we go through our gallery of famous art forgers, and at the end we can discuss what we've learned from these short anecdotes about, uh, I'm going to talk about 20 or so examples of famous master forgers in the process. There is a wholesale forgery, which is um, an example, we'll use the von Mechren example. That is someone who creates from scratch a work of art that is meant to be um, of the work of a different artist and therefore of higher value than the work would have been if it was announced that the person who actually made it was the artist. Alteration of authentic works is the definition of a fake. This is an authentic work that is somehow doctored or altered in order to pass it off as something more valuable. The most difficult to prove is misattribution of an authentic work And there are examples of this, but it's very difficult to prove that someone didn't just make a mistake. It's relatively easy for the art trade to hide behind having been fooled themselves. But there's some specific instances we'll look at that that make it very clear indeed that there was um, malice aforethought. And then perhaps most interesting is what I refer to as the provenance trap. And there are a number of different variations on this. But most art is authenticated these days through a scientific study and through an examination of provenance. And this is probably a crowd that knows what provenance is, but just very briefly if there's anyone who's uncertain about it. Um, 
Before the last few decades, the way that art was authenticated was through connoisseurship, uh, the expertise of individuals who study in incredible depth a certain period or a certain artist and feel that they have this intrinsic sense for authenticity. Just like you might recognize your spouse if you see them across the room, um, experts connoisseurs could recognize an authentic Michelangelo drawing, for example. Uh, the most famous connoisseur is probably Bernard Berenson, who we'll get to in a moment, who sometimes used his abilities um, to profit personally by intentionally misattributing individual objects. Um, but connoisseurship is sort of a, a naughty word these days. And I was teaching a seminar on art crime at Yale a couple of years ago. And there's someone who was teaching a seminar on connoisseurship, someone from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And other art history professors were sort of booing him for bringing up this subject, which is considered to be now a parlor trick, like divination. It's no longer the thing to do to study connoisseurship. And I studied at the Corto Institute, which is one of the last places on the planet that teaches connoisseurship. And I think that it is a valuable skill. But people rely now mostly on scientific study and on provenance. And scientific study is often good, but it can also be falsified, which we'll get to in a moment. And provenance is the documented history of an object. Who owned it when? The problem with provenance and with artworks is that it is incredibly rare if any one object has a complete provenance. But if it does, it tells the person looking at it doing research who owned it when and essentially asks and answers the question, is this object either fake or is it illicit? Was it excavated recently or was it excavated before 1970 when there was a UNESCO convention that made very strict the um, laws on excavation and exportation of cultural heritage? Was it in the possession of galleries or owners back long enough to assure us that it is authentic and legitimate? And that's the question that provenance seeks to answer. However, the provenance trap takes advantage of the sometimes over-reliance of the art trade and art experts on provenance. And if the provenance looks good, sometimes they don't look too hard at the object. So let's go through some examples. But very briefly, it, it may seem like a silly thing to bring up, but what is the value of an artwork? Um, it's not concrete. And one of the definitions of, of art in terms that we study with relation to art crime is an object for which the value is much higher through non-intrinsic means. We're not dealing with jewelry because of the value of the gold and diamonds in it. We're dealing with jewelry if it has an illustrious history that gives it an elevated value. If Audrey Hepburn owned a bracelet, then it constitutes art in the terms that we discuss. If it's just a bracelet with no illustrious history, then it's not. So value is based on some combination of perceived rarity plus perceived authenticity. And we might also um, throw in the perceived fashion, whether something is in fashion or not. But perception is the key word. If everyone in the world thinks that an object is authentic, then it is authentic. Knowing this, you can take the next step forward to recognize that it is not in the interest of anyone in the art world, beyond a sense of sort of abstract justice, to disprove the authenticity of a possibly authentic object. Just like a wide variety of people would lose out if an object that comes on the market is proven to have been stolen or illicitly looted. The owner loses out and could go to jail. They lose out on their money. The middleman loses the commission. The buyer loses their trophy. Scholars lose the object of study. 
insurers can lose out as well. If an object is perceived to be legitimate or authentic, then everyone benefits. Because of this, I would never say that most of the art trade is sort of up to no good. That's not the case. But there is, at an at least subconscious level, a non-malevolent wishful thinking that each object that comes on the market of promise will prove to be authentic. And that is the environment in which clever criminals can thrive. And tonight we're talking about cases of forgery. I mentioned connoisseurship versus science and authentication technology. We'll talk about some common mistakes that forgers make, and we'll talk a bit about forensic criminology and art. But now on to the gallery of famous forgers. This fellow, you may or may not know, began his career as an art forger. At age 21, Michelangelo Buonarroti, before anyone knew who this Michelangelo fellow was, created my out-of-focus Bacchus statue, which, in collaboration with a crooked antiquities dealer, um, they decided to break the statue, bury it in the garden of the antiquities dealer, and dig it up as a miraculous archaeological discovery. Because, of course, an ancient Roman marble statue was of much greater value than something by this Michelangelo fellow who no one had heard of. This is before the Pietà, before he had named, made a name for himself. This is now on view at the Bargello Museum. But you can see the temptation for young artists to turn their hand at forgery when there's much more profit to be had. Luca Giordano, you may know from his original paintings, um, he was a bit of a trickster and a practical joker, um, and a great admirer of Albrecht Dürer. And in fact, he painted something in the style of Dürer, and he recommended to one of his patrons that they buy it, because they said it was a fantastic work. The patron bought the painting, and Luca Giordano planned this as a practical joke. He then tried to reveal that he had, in fact, painted in the style of Dürer and had just pulled the wool over the eyes of his patron, and the patron refused to believe it. And Luca Giordano had to point out a tiny signature that he had hidden in the work for the patron to believe that, in fact, this was a Giordano painting. I mentioned uh, Ramondi versus Dürer. They look somewhat similar, don't they? Um, the lawsuit in 1506... Um, the three editions, Ramondi's monogram, which was based on Dürer's famous monogram, which you see up here. Um, the Dalyesus publisher's device, which is a YHS inside quatrefoils. The warning didn't suffice to put off forgers because in 1515 there was another forged edition, this time of Dürer's Apocalypse, printed in Italy. So Dürer is perhaps, the, well, certainly the most frequently forged artist of the early modern period, and Picasso would be the most frequently forged of the modern period. But he sets an interesting precedent because of his fame. That AD monogram was a proof of authenticity and gave value to a print that could be miraculous in and of itself, but was of greatly increased value because of who did it. And this is the earliest period, really, that collectors begin to say, I would like a Raphael, or I would like a Durer. And it doesn't really matter which one. And François Premier, the king of France, wrote to Raphael, to Leonardo, to Michelangelo, saying, please send me anything that you did. And that was really a first. But you can see where the use of a signature, the addition of a signature, to prove authenticity for an inauthentic work would raise its sale value. <clears throat> 